John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, it says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one beginning with the oldest, even to the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Scholars debate whether John chapter 8 verses 1 through 11 should even be in the Bible. John Phillips, that great Bible commentator, wrote, Gallons of ink have been spilled trying to prove that John did not write this story. I think I have a minimum of about 30 commentaries on the Gospel of John, and you could quite literally fill several messages for all of the reasons why they think that it shouldn't be in. Certainly the passage is not contained in any of the oldest family of manuscripts, and to my knowledge, no Greek church father before a man named um, Euthymius Zygarenus in the 12th century comments on the passage. He declared that the passage was excluded from the oldest manuscripts from John's Gospel. And the best conservative Bible scholars agree that the passage is almost certainly based on what that we would consider true oral tradition. This drama was in fact a true historical incident in the life and in the ministry of Jesus. Some of my Bible my favorite Bible teachers skip the passage in the commentary altogether. For those who argue the passage is probably a genuine event in the life of Jesus, they point to the fact that it certainly doesn't contradict the Scripture. And again, John MacArthur writes, and I quote, The picture it paints is of the wise, loving, forgiving Savior, and it is consistent with the Bible's portrait of Christ. Nor is it the kind of story early, the early church would have made up about him, unquote. And I agree wholeheartedly. The story rings true. And the early church fathers like Jerome and Ambrose and Augustine, they all cite the story. The passage is certainly about a woman caught in the indisputable act of adultery. About a group of religious leaders caught in 
in the an undeniable hypocrisy, but it's also more than that. It's a snapshot, if you will, of an indescribable Savior. It tells of his devotional life. It speaks of Christ's humility, of his unmatched wisdom, of his amazing power to forgive and to restore. But for the careful reader, it reveals something else. Something about me. Something about you. It reveals the reality of the wickedness of our sins, of our own hypocrisy, of our own self-righteousness, how God uses our conscience to convict us. And later in the chapter, Jesus will expose the contradictions in the lives of the religious leaders. And in that exposing, he'll expose something in our heart in verses 12 through 59 later. When Jesus forgives, Jesus restores. And the religious leaders want to trap Jesus. And if that means killing this woman, so be it. Jesus wants to save this woman. And if that means exposing the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, so be it. It begins with a snapshot. Of the devotional life of Jesus. Look again in verse 1. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. In order to understand the passage, we have to go back to chapter 7 for a brief moment and look at verse 53. And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Remember, it's the last day of the feast, and Jesus has been staying on the Mount of Olives. We know from other passages in the New Testament, Jesus had friends on that side of the mountain. A woman named Mary and a woman named Martha and and their brother named Lazarus. We have every reason to believe that he may have stayed there, but in the event that he wasn't staying there, he was camped out in the stars. Isn't it interesting? It it speaks of the humility of Jesus. Here is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, and he's camped out. It says in verse 2, Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. I love the way that the verse begins, Now early in the morning, because again it speaks to the reality of the devotional life of Jesus. Much of my Christian life is spent getting up early, seeking the Lord, seeking the Father, and seeking His Son. Jesus, it says, came and taught. And both verbs are in what is known as the continuous action tense. We might read, Jesus kept coming, and He kept teaching, and the people kept hearing, and they kept Learning, And we are immediately struck by the contrast of Jesus' devotional life and the life of his critics. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Jesus gets up early. Jesus goes to the temple. And again, if through some magic we could go back in time and space, and somehow I could take you to Jerusalem, and I could take you to that particular place, and if we were looking for Jesus, invariably we would find him Teaching in the temple. He sits down because that's the position of the teacher. The New Testament speaks a lot about the devotional life of Jesus. Jesus worships the Lord. Jesus 
prays, Jesus teaches, Jesus ministers, Jesus is devoted to the Father and his devotion is a wholehearted devotion. Jesus does those things, but there's one thing that he doesn't do, that I do quite often. Repent. Confess my sin. Communicate my sin. Jesus didn't confess sin. He didn't have to. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we might be made right with God through Christ. The world of human sin is a world of darkness and a world of danger. The Bible says that we put ourselves at risk every time we sin. And when we continue to sin, Roy Lauren writes, quote, Sin is character. Sins are conduct. Sin is the cause. Sins are the effect. Sin is root. Sins are fruit. The Bible teaches that we need to be taught. Even teachers need to be taught. You know, it's interesting in this particular passage, we're not told what Jesus is teaching. It doesn't say that he's teaching from Isaiah or Jeremiah or what he's saying. But as he's teaching in the temple, I'm wondering what he's what he's asking. I'm wondering what he's saying. Is he teaching about what do you believe about sin? What do you believe about forgiveness? What do you believe about restoration? We're not told, but the religious leaders break into his Bible study and provide a timeless illustration for Christians in every generation. When I was a young man, I had a person break into my Bible study. I was teaching at, at, a, at my high school. I had only been saved for a little while. And this is during that fad called streaking, you know, when people would take all of their clothes off and they would run across the schoolyard. So I'm conducting a Bible study, and all of a sudden, here's this young man wearing only boots and a ski mask, and he literally runs right through my Bible study. It happened to be my, my brother. Now think about that for just a moment. I'm teaching the Bible study, and my Pagan, unbelieving brother is streaking right through it. I can guarantee you no one remembered what I taught that day. But he became the illustration for the study that day. You can imagine when they are there, they're bringing this woman and she becomes the object lesson. The religious leaders break into the Bible study. <laughs> Andrew Murray writes, quote, it is in the closet, in the morning watch, that our spiritual life is both tested and strengthened. There is the battlefield where it is decided every day whether God is going to have all, whether our life is going to be lived in obedience to God. And you can imagine when Jesus camped out in the stars, perhaps getting up even before the sun comes up and he goes to the temple, you rest assured he understands what's going to happen that day. And the circumstances that he is going to face. We see a setup by self-righteous sinners. Look at verse 3. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and Pharisees brought a woman they had caught 
in the act of adultery, they put her in front of the crowd. Verse 4, they said to him, teacher, rabbi, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Special emphasis is placed in verse 3 and 4. On the very act. Caught in the act of adultery. And again, we should immediately pause for a moment and ask, um, how is it that the religious leaders were able to catch her in the act? I found the answer is found in part in the common title of this section. I don't know about your Bible, but at the top of my Bible in chapter 8, it says, The scribes and Pharisees accuse a woman caught in adultery. The passage doesn't say the man and the woman caught in adultery. It doesn't say the scribes and Pharisees and their hypocrisy. I'm amazed. How is it that the man conveniently escaped? The religious leaders who have caught the woman have pretty much posted the video on YouTube for all the world to see. Anyone can go and click on because they have the hard and the fast evidence. We know that sin is a work of darkness. And we also know that typically sin is done in the dark. And sin is usually done broadly in two venues. We typically sin in the open or we sin secretly. There have been chapters in human history when sinful behavior was sufficiently shameful and sufficiently harmful and sufficiently hurtful that conscientious sinners usually had the good manners to sin secretly. Most parents have the good sense not to drink and drug in front of their children. Most parents have the good sense not to numb the persistent voices that are crying out in their head as they're trying to still those voices. Most sins still carry sufficient guilt and shame that we attempt to cover it up in the darkness. We attempt to hide our sin from our husbands. We attempt to hide our sin from our wives, from our children, from our parents, from the boss, from our classmates, from our workmates, from our church friends. But God knows what we're doing. And certainly we don't want the pastor to find out. Oh, God help us if the pastor finds out. I know that people have walked through those doors and said, What did you tell him? Husbands elbowing their wives. What did you tell him? I didn't tell him anything. If you think this morning's message is about you, it is. But it isn't because your wife told me or your parents told me. I have to wonder if the couple knew they were being observed. Watch. What do you think? I have to wonder if the man was a part of the setup. I have to believe that if the woman knew she was being watched, girls, girls, if she knew she was being watched, would she have been there? 
Would she have committed adultery? Does she have any idea? She couldn't believe. She couldn't believe anyone would ever know that anyone would ever find out. The couple thinks what we all think. No one will ever know. No one will ever find out. And in the midst of their passion, in the midst of their lust, they become blinded by the things, by at least two things the vast majority of us don't understand. The Bible says, be sure that your sin will find you out. Their sin would be discovered. If not seen by human beings, it's being posted in heaven for all of heaven to see, for God's careful vision to evaluate. Imagine that God has a search engine. Let's type it in. Google. God. Okay, if that doesn't work. Um, Yahweh. Yahoo. If that doesn't work. Ask Jesus. <laughs> oh, we got a hit. Now we're going to type in your name. Oh. Every thought. Every word. Every deed. Every moment of every day, your sin is always seen. You might place your computer on private browsing, but God knows the porn sites that you visited. God knows the journey that you take in your mind. God knows every selfish word and every self-righteous delusion and every criticism motivated by lovelessness and every hypocritical judgment. Remember, it's the feast, the booth of tabernacles. There's wine, there's celebration. Perhaps the unknown and unmentioned man, he makes advances and the woman doesn't resist. Maybe she likes him and maybe they're even in love and maybe they were even planning on getting married. Even the scribes and the Pharisees to set up a sexual sting operation would have been very difficult in that culture, but it is possible. And who were the witnesses? And how long did they linger as they watched? What went through their minds as they watched? And they take the woman and they bring her before the religious leaders. And the woman is dragged into the temple grounds proper. And she is openly and publicly and dramatically given over for judgment. Imagine her shaking and trembling. The sin and the guilt are overwhelming. The shame and the embarrassment and the shock. Does she have a husband? Does he know? Where is the man? Did he escape? Is he a part of the plan? Did he bribe the witnesses? Did he receive preferential treatment in a society that understands and excuses the sin of men but vilifies the sin of women? And make no mistake. She knows that she's only one word. She's only one stone away from being dead. Her life is on the line. That's what's at stake. She could die before this is over with. And look at verse 5. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? They come to the rabbi and we only can wonder why. 
Jesus doesn't have jurisdiction over this woman's life. The Sanhedrin does, and the Roman government does. But they say, Rabbi, it wasn't uncommon for for people to go to rabbis in order to render judgment. Rabbi, what do you say? What does the Bible say? And certainly Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, is very clear. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. In Deuteronomy 22, verses 13 through 24, it lays out the penalty. It talks about the case of a girl who's already betrothed. In a case like that, she and the man who seduced her are to be brought outside the city gates. And this is what it says, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The Mishnah, that is the Jewish codified law, states that the penalty for adultery is strangulation. And even the method of strangulation is laid down in the Mishnah. It says, and I quote, the man is to be enclosed in dung up to his knees. And a soft towel is set within a rough towel. It is to be placed around his neck in order that no mark may be made for the punishment is God's punishment. Then one man draws in one direction and another in another direction until he is dead. They wrap the towel. They play tug of war with the towel around his carotid artery until the blood ceases to flow to his brain. And then they attempt literally to take his head off until he drops dead. The Mishnah reiterates the death, that death by stoning is the penalty for a girl who is betrothed and who then commits adultery. And from the purely legal point of view, the scribes and the Pharisees are perfectly correct. The woman is liable to death by stoning. Every self-respecting rabbi said, every Jew must die before he will commit idolatry or murder, or adultery. In other words, the rabbi said, look, rather than do that, just resign yourself that you would rather be dead. In John chapter 8, verse 6, it says, this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. He ignored them. This is what, by the way, is known as being placed on the horns of a dilemma. What should Jesus do? They're testing Jesus for the purpose of discrediting him and his ministry. They, listen carefully, they don't care really about the law of Moses. They don't really care about justice. They certainly don't care about this woman. The crowd gathers around Jesus, the religious leaders and the woman. If Jesus is to conduct an inquiry, if he's to question the woman, the witnesses, and determines that she's guilty and then pronounces judgment, Jesus would be breaking Roman law, which reserved for itself the right to judge in capital cases. The Romans certainly took a dim view of adultery but it was rarely a capital offense. Jesus would also certainly lose his reputation as a friend of sinners. 
and face accusation of being unloving and unmerciful. Hey, wait a minute, Jesus. Wait a minute. I thought you were the friend of sinners. Hey, wait a minute, Jesus. Jesus, what about mercy? What about compassion? What about grace? What about forgiveness? And if Jesus suggests she's not guilty, he would break the Jewish law. And leave himself open to the criticism of being soft on sin. Or worse than that, of being a lawbreaker. If Jesus says, forgive her and let her go, people will say, oh, you're a lawbreaker. Jesus says he loves the law, but he encourages people to break the law. Jesus, there's a reason why we have this law. It concerns the sanctity of marriage and the preciousness of sex within the boundaries of marriage. It It protects the fabric of of society, which begins with the family. Destroy the family. Destroy the marriage. You destroy the community. And you destroy the civilization. But do they really care about justice? This, it says, they said, testing him. There's one desire that the religious leaders have. To trap Jesus. Condemning the woman was only a means to an end. By the way, our first goal in dealing with sin should be confession and repentance and forgiveness and restoration. There's an immediate lesson to be learned right from the start. This is one of those strange byproducts of human Religion of man-made religion. Man-made religion ignores sin or excuses sin. Man-made religion creates an atmosphere of condemnation or a false sense of personal goodness which promotes religious hypocrisy. What is it about us that wants to condemn rather than save and reject rather than rescue? The Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourselves, lest you also be tested. And the very next verse says, Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ? That you're to love each other. Is that who you are? Do you bear burdens? Do you have a self-righteous spirit that lacks forgiveness? Do you have a supply of criticism, but you don't have the supply of love? Are you quick to judge without compassion? Is it possible that you have a theology of sin, but you don't have a theology of restoration? And the religious leaders carried all the marks of hypocrisy. They believed. You have to understand something. They believed. They truly believed. They believed with every molecule in their body. They believed that their religious activity made them better than the woman. Make no mistake about it. Each and every person there with the rock in their hand calling for her execution believed themselves to be morally and spiritually superior. And make no mistake about it. Every time you call for someone's head and you don't consider your own head, every time you judge another person's sin and you don't evaluate your own sin, you run a very grave danger. Look what it says. 
Then strangely, Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. The religious hypocrites rarely considered the consequences or the exposure of their own sin. They just kept yelling at him. Jesus? Jesus? Law or grace? Which is it going to be? Law or grace? Law or grace? What's it going to be, Jesus? By the way, volumes have been written about what he may or may not have written. This is the only time in the New Testament that we see Jesus stooping on the ground and he's riding in the sand. Do you wonder what he's riding? In the Old Testament, there is a picture of God's hand coming down from heaven, riding on a tablet of stone, the law. Various authors have made various suggestions. He was riding the sin of the accusers in the sand, someone wrote. Can you imagine? Shlomo. Do you remember that time when you were in Tyre and you didn't think anyone was looking and you had that hookup with that woman? Jeremiah, do you remember that trip that you took all the way to Damascus and you thought for sure no one watched you check into the hotel? Ooh, Ezra. You write down so many different things, but you had no idea that there was a hand in heaven writing down your circumstances. Some of you suggested he was just simply doodling in the sand to pass the time. Forcing the religious hypocrites to repeat the charge over and over again, displaying their contempt for their woman and the lack of compassion so that anyone in their right mind could see that this was a mob lynching. Wives, have you ever had your husband nag you? What do you think? Come on, let's make a decision. Let's get with it. Make a decision. Make a decision. Make a decision. When you're pressed for a decision, what do you normally do, ladies? You say stuff you don't want to say. I'm going to speak, and what I'm about to say, you're going to have to live with the consequences. You keep putting pressure on me. They're putting pressure on Jesus to speak. Do you think exposing their sins will soften their accusation? Jesus ignores them for a season. Jesus ignores their self-righteousness. Jesus ignores their hypercritical, hypocritical spirit. He ignores them, but he won't do it forever and he won't do it for long. He will get up and he will face them and he will speak. Look what it says in verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. The religious leaders kept pressing him. What's it going to be, Jesus? What's it going to be? Gary Burge, in his wonderful commentary, he writes this, quote, 
This is a powerful story because it paints a strong picture of harsh judges who have neglected their responsibility to care for the soul of the woman. She is disposable. Their aim is to corner Jesus, and her life is a tool in their theological gambit to make him either condemn her, thus sacrificing his commitment to grace, or forgiving her, thus sacrificing his commitment to God's law, unquote. There's some debate among New Testament scholars concerning both the translation and the meaning of this passage. One scholar suggests that the actual translation should read, quote, Let he who is without the same sin cast the first stone. In Jewish culture and society, particularly with the law, you had to have two witnesses and they had to agree exactly and those witnesses could not be guilty of the self-same sin. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus is going to save the woman from death. How is he going to do it? By shifting the embarrassment from the accused woman onto her accusers. He basically says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Preserving both grace and preserving the law. Is sinlessness the credential for offering accusation? If it is, then only one person who is there has the right to condemn her. Is everyone there a sinner? The answer is yes. Is there one person there who is not a sinner? That's Jesus. Some have suggested that the stone began with the witnesses. They would take the rocks and they would hurl it at the principal person. But one of the witnesses was given what was known as the killing stone. They would stone the victim until he or she lay motionless and then the killing stone was placed in the hand of the witness and then it was pressed upon the skull of the person until their brains were literally mashed out. Jesus is in effect asking about their own self-righteousness and their hypocrisy. Jesus limits those who may throw the stone. The person has to be at least not guilty of the same sin. The only person is Jesus. And so again, is sinlessness the credential for offering accusation? At least in this case, it seems to be. We know that Christians are to judge right from wrong. We know that Christians are to judge good from evil. We know that Christians are to judge sin within the congregation. We know that Christians are to avoid hypocritical and self-righteous judgments. And again in verse 8 it says, again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And for the second time Jesus begins writing. Again, we're not told what Jesus wrote, but Jesus perhaps scribbled from Jeremiah where it says, And God shall write in the dirt those that reject him. Again, we're not told. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. 
Is it possible that he wrote something about me? Or he wrote something about you? He wrote something about your circumstance to remind you not to play the hypocrite. And look at verse 9. It says, Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. As Jesus stood there, you can imagine the words begin to sink in. Then those who heard it began, became convicted by their own conscience. Their own conscience began to cry out, do what's right, do the right thing, do what's right. Only one other place in the Old Testament does it talk about the oldest to the last. It's when Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers. The conscience is a powerful persuader. The conscience in and of itself is a powerful persuader. But can you imagine your conscience in the presence of Jesus? Your conscience in the presence of a perfect person who is pure. There isn't much room for self-righteousness or hypocrisy. And now the power of self-accusation takes over. How do you evaluate your life when you are standing in the light of Jesus? You know what's interesting? The accusers came to shame and condemn the woman. And shame and condemn Jesus. Now they leave ashamed. Condemned by their own conscience. Imagine the woman is shaking and crying because she knows that the next words will determine whether she lives or whether she dies. And Jesus is stooped down in the dirt and everyone else is gone. And she is guilty. How does Jesus treat this woman? He said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? I know there are some of your things. That doesn't sound very pleasant, but remember, Jesus called his own mom, woman. He's not being disrespectful. He's not trying to increase her degradation. He's not trying to compound her embarrassment. He asks the question, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And she said, and Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. You should underline that if you're one of those people who underline your Bible. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The woman acknowledges Jesus as Lord. Really? She said, no one, Lord. Does that mean she trusted Jesus as Lord? We're not told, but she understands something remarkable. Something amazing is taking place. 
I'm amazed at how many people read the passage and they desperately desire Jesus to condemn the woman. He still wants to save her. There are those who are disgusted by the fact that Jesus is determined to love her soul and to save her circumstances. Could Jesus have condemned her? Perhaps in a technical sense, Jesus could have quoted the scripture and and reminded the woman the law calls for two witnesses to pronounce the judgment in exposing the religious leader's sin and hypocrisy. There's insufficient evidence to convict the woman. He has the right, I'm going to suggest to you, to condemn her, but he doesn't condemn her because he gives her a second chance. Does he have the right to do that? Does he have the right to do it to you? When people are desperately wanting you to pay, somebody needs to pay. Oh, okay. No, no, you don't understand. Somebody needs to be embarrassed and humiliated and shamed the way I was embarrassed and humiliated and ashamed. Okay. No, no, you don't understand. They, you, you, they need to hurt them. Oh, okay. No, no, I mean hurt them to the point. I mean, we're talking about really hurt them. Okay. Some critics have accused Jesus of being soft on sin. What do we do with sinners in the church? What about punishment? What about penance? What about restitution? Jesus, she, you should at least make her do community service. By the way, is she getting away with something? Is Jesus soft on sin? Nothing could be further from the truth. By some scholars' estimates in a few short days, by other scholars' estimates in a few short months, Jesus will be arrested. And he will be beaten. And he will be tortured. And he will be shamed. And he will be humiliated. And he will cruelly be placed on a Roman cross and he will be tortured and killed in the most unimaginably cruel fashion. Every stone that was meant for that woman The condemnation that she deserved. Remember what the word condemnation means. It's the judicial pronouncement of guilt because you're guilty. He will pay the price. He will pay for that sin specifically. And he will pay for every sin ever committed by that woman. In the dark, when no one was watching, or in the light, when everyone was watching. And Jesus will go and he will pay the price for your sin, which is good news. But also for your husband's sin and your wife's sin and your children's sin, which under certain circumstances may not sound like good news. What? Lord, I want them to pay! 
Isn't it funny how we want mercy for ourselves and grace for ourselves, but we want judgment for everybody else? In Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Paul writes these amazing words. He says, who then will condemn us? Will Jesus Christ? No, for he's the one who died for us and was raised to life for us and is seated at the highest place of honor next to God pleading for us. I love that. What does it mean that Jesus forgave this woman? Forgiveness seems rooted in repentance from past sin and then a willingness to abandon future sin. Look what he says to her. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. When Jesus says go and sin no more, it must mean that Jesus means a new life. A new life is what follows forgiveness, a changed life follows forgiveness. A new and a changed life follows forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't an excuse to continue in sin. Remember what Paul wrote? Should we sin more so that grace can abound? Heaven forbid. This woman was not forgiven as a religious convenience, but as a means of restoration to live a new life. You weren't forgiven as a theological convenience but as a means of restoration to live a new life. Roy Lauren writes, Observe the simplicity of forgiveness. It consisted simply of the woman's confession and contrition of Jesus' absolution without sanction, without penalty, without penance imposed upon her. It was solely of grace. And that's why we love this story. But that's why some people hate this story. Do you remember what we sang earlier? Your grace is enough. Your grace is enough. Your grace is enough for Really? Really? How about for the person next to you? How about for the purpose for the person who has hurt you and harmed you? James, the brother of Jesus, writes, Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. We read that passage and we wonder if it's about anyone and everyone. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. That day, James' brother, Jesus, saved a woman from death. Covered a multitude of sins. But it wasn't cheap grace. It was an exacting judgment that would cost him his life. What does it mean that Jesus forgave this woman? 
it means the same thing when he forgives you. Look again at the passage. Neither do I condemn you. Underline it. Neither do I condemn you. Wonder about it. Is he talking about you? Neither do I condemn you. I'm giving you a second chance. Oh, wait a minute. I'm giving you a third chance. A fifth chance. Fiftieth chance. Ooh, the text seems pregnant with chances. Because Jesus isn't interested in you dying. He's interested in you living. He isn't interested in condemning you. He's interested in saving you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray for each and every person here. I pray, Lord, that we would understand something. That some people are willing to sacrifice other people and kill them in order to make a theological point. What's it going to be, Jesus? Grace or the law? And Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that both the grace and the law are resolved and justice is satisfied forever in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Your justice is satisfied. Your mercy is demonstrated. Your love is immersed and demonstrated in a perfect sacrifice that will result in our forgiveness and our restoration and our redemption. Lord, your grace is enough. Your grace is enough for me.